Hello everyone, I am Harry Foku and I connect businesses in the gaming industry with freelance tech solutions and I'm your host. Welcome everyone to another installment of the Evolution Gaming Podcast. Today I'm joined by Gina Shagandi, Pascal Francese and Eric Christensen to discuss how to make a game that lasts. Before we begin, let's start with some introductions. Janesha, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, hi, hi everyone. So my name is Janesha Gandhi, as Harry mentioned, and I've been in the gaming industry for quite a few years, starting with mobile gaming, and then I ventured into console gaming. So I've worked with Ubisoft for five years. Now I'm working as a producer at Red Hill Games. So some of the titles that I've worked on, South Park, The Fractured Butthole, Steep, Riders Republic, and, and an unannounced project. And right now also, I can't speak much for the project I'm working on. And I'm super excited to be discussing games with you guys. And I want to know what everyone has to say and what do you guys think on various topics. So yeah, super excited. Nice. Let's move on to Pascal. Quick intro. So I'm Pasquale Francese. I'm uh, serving as a technical director on uh, Fast Travel Games. Um, uh, VR studio and uh, formerly I worked on uh, uh, CD Projekt Red on uh, Gwent, uh, Thronebreaker and uh, Cyberpunk 2077. Um, I love games in all forms and uh, platforms and I'm super excited to have this discussion. Awesome, last but not least Eric. Yeah hello my name is Eric Christensen. Um, I've worked in gaming since 2012. I started off as a designer and basically Worked uh, from everything from a kind of a little small startup where we were like 12 people to then move on to happily work for EA, where I worked on uh, as a designer for both like Need for Speed uh, 2015, helped out on uh, Mirror's Edge, and then came to Stockholm and got the opportunity to work with both Star Wars and Battlefield uh, before moving on to Fat Truck, where I am today. Um, and during my time here, I I've transitioned into becoming a producer uh, and working on the soon-to-be-released uh, Dark Tide title, which is our 40k um, installment in the Warhammer universe. Lovely. All right. So everyone has a question or statement on how to make a game that lasts. So let's start with Janesha. What is your question and the context behind it? So my question, my question is, how do you manage a big vision for a game with limited time and budget? So the reason, you know, I chose this question is because, you know, this is an issue that a lot of producers and managers face. We all want to make amazing games, but we're always, you know, we have to work under a budget or a time constraint because we have to release it in a certain period of time, according to, you know, the company. And also we have... <laughs> money constraints so i was wondering what do you uh, what do you guys think about this maybe i'll start with you eric yeah sure i i when i, th I thought about the first thing i thought about with this was kind of like uh the most important thing for me would be kind of like the intent of the designs or the features um and also like of course the like sale pitch would be uh the most bang for the buck those are the two biggest kind of aspects that you kind of need to focus on i would guess because um, I feel like it easily becomes during a development that you you know uh, features or areas of the game kind of get bloated during the during development, and uh, you don't often enough go back and actually think about the intent of the feature that you started off with. Um, so kind of like going back to like how to keep the big vision is like. What was the pure thought that triggered this uh, excitement? And also kind of like, how do you keep that, like, what do you call it? Sweden, we call it like red line <laughs> throughout the development. Uh, so yeah, um, that would be my kind of good pitch for it. Yeah, uh, thank you for the answer. I, I mean, I completely agree with you. It's very important, uh, you know, for for the management of producers to keep in mind the crux of the game of why we are making it, what we really want to uh, show to the players and give to the players and then prioritizing accordingly you know what is really important in the time that we you know in the given time we have because it's even important to keep in mind the quality as well of the game it shouldn't be where we just make features and features but the quality gets compromised so yeah i agree with you on this and thank you for your answer maybe maybe next pascal do you have any thoughts well uh... 
Uh, I must preface that uh, usually I'm pretty much the last person that talks about the vision because I'm more on the technical side. So usually it's a discussion that happens between artists and designers. Uh, and I'm just there listening and say, yeah, we can do that or not really. This is impossible in uh, just uh, a few years. <laughs> um, but that said, um, I I think I did notice sometimes a pattern of um, starting with an idea, idea getting uh, too much enamored with it, and then not being able to pivot when it becomes clear that uh, after you implemented it, that it wasn't as good as it sounded. So there is also the issue of, um, how can I say, the, a, a sort of sunken cost fallacy on the other end of the spectrum. Um, you, uh, on one side, it's important not to abandon the original uh, um, vision for the game. On the other hand, you need to be ready to fail fast. Uh, and sometimes uh, if you are not testing uh, fast enough, that can become a very big problem in production. Just need to unmute. Thank you for the answer. Sorry. Thank you for the answer. It's good to get your perspective as well. You know, I think our <laughs> my topic is very producer oriented, but it's good to know and it's nice to know how even technical directors think because it really matters in the long run. You know, when it comes to making a big game in the limited time and budget that we have. And, and yeah, so thank you so much. I have a follow up question, guys. So in terms of failing fast, like how do you actually do that in practice? Because I feel like there's sometimes you can have that you can have too much of that. Like if you aren't developing a feature for long enough, then you're going to test it again. I don't know. It just seems like, how do you actually do that in practice? Um, my approach with it is to get a very quick and dirty prototype uh, up and running and just play it. Then usually it's so fastly done that uh, you just need to throw it away. And that is the part that is very difficult to communicate um, to other departments because yeah, I know it's working right now, but it's not working for the future. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I mean, I agree with you. I I think it's important when you know we have uh, when a company or a group of people think about making a game, it's very important to even take the timeline of prototyping. And it's not only a month or two months. I mean, I would honestly say it depends on the game, but it's so important to give prototyping the time it needs yes most of it is throwaway work because when we prototype you know we're basically testing different uh, different theories we're testing different technologies we want to see if this really makes sense and there's continuous play tests also happening within the company and you also have your friends and family play test or you can have you know other people come who sign ndas and get feedbacks early on before you even step into the pre-production so this is one way that you know, I mean, that we can see that, I mean, this is one way to see how to make sure a game does not fail. I mean, it's not fail in the future. Also, I think, I also think that testing should be done not only in the prototyping stage, but we have to keep testing, keep testing throughout the development of the game. And the team is very important. So playtests is, I think all gaming companies should make playtests a very crucial and important a uh, way of doing things and I know a lot of people get frustrated when it comes to playtesting because you want to do your own work but this is this is crucial you know your vision you get to see it and you get to give good feedbacks so you can learn from your mistakes early on. How about you Eric what are you thinking? Yeah I think uh, when it comes to failing fast I think it's uh, for those that have applied that as a, as a development process probably has a good understanding of how it is structured for them. Uh, but in my experience, basically, if it's not been explicitly stated as being a fail fast progress, the most important thing I feel is kind of instead being the sign offs need to be clear because it's very simple that, you know, everybody goes in with the intent of this being a prototype and then not having clear sign off st statements that, you know, it is. As Pascal said, like, this is a very cheap version. Are we like, do we see the intent behind this or do we see the vision? Yes. All right. Let's add another sprint to it. Uh, it easily becomes to like, yeah, it's not finished yet. It works, but it's, you know, we can do it better. And then suddenly you have developed the core of the feature based on it being supposed to be a prototype. So um, 
I would say that the benefits of failing fast is that you can iterate fast. The downside is that if you're not strict with your uh, stamping it a failure or a success, it can easily drag out and you kind of uh, mishandle the this so-called uh, prototype. Awesome. I'm just thinking about this now. Like you have a big vision for a game and obviously you have less time and budget. So it sounds like no matter what, someone's going to be disappointed. Like it's a guarantee, like at least someone's been disappointed, whether it be the people developing the games, the producer or the people, the release managers. So I'm like, how would you manage disappointment? Like, is that a thing? Like, I'm guessing you have to deal with that almost as a guarantee. So I don't know. How, how do you guys find this? I'll go to uh, you, Eric. Do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, I always have opinions. But uh, like I'd say, um, managing disappointment, I think, is unavoidable when it comes to development. I think it's more about kind of like, you know, picking your battles or uh, trying to explain the reasoning behind the priorities. Uh, because in the end, the most important thing is that you release uh, a complete product, even if the vision and um, the, the visions behind it were way more granular. It's better to release a solid product than releasing a concept of what it could have been. Um, so I would say that it would then turn into kind of presenting a a clear plan roadmap or like a life service intent to kind of emphasize that the things that people were passionate about that didn't get in or was cut uh, is either revamped or you showcase where that love has gone or should go in the future of the product to kind of solidify it. Nice. How about you, Janesha? You had something to say? So, um, I mean, I agree with you, Eric. Uh, I mean, <laughs> you can't make everyone happy, unfortunately. But when it comes to managing disappointment, I think it's very important to set the expectation to the team, to everyone, to all the stakeholders that, okay, why is it we are doing A, you know, when we had, when, when we all wanted to do B? Why did we make this decision? Also, transparency, because it's important to be transparent with your team as well because they are doing most of the work right so they have their you know they have the emotions involved in it to a large extent so being very clear transparent and telling them that okay this is not we wanted to do this but it's not working we can't have it in the game right now due to maybe budget constraints or time constraints and maybe we can you know think of having it as a dlc or and presenting different options to them and sharing that knowledge with them that you know your work is just not it's not going to be throwaway unless it's something which really doesn't work it's a different situation but your work did matter because people tend to get a bit you know demotivated when something like this happens when they work hard on something and for some reason it can't be in the game but like eric said what's more important and the main vision is something that we need to make sure that people you know people have the same goal it's releasing a solid game after all because that's what really matters at the end. So, yeah, these are my thoughts. No, I like that because you're basically spinning a negative into a positive, right? Like all that work that this developer has done uh, has amounted to something. It's not going to be in the main game per se, but it might influence a future game, future DOC. And as long as everyone is kind of in line with what you said in terms of at the end of the day, we're here to make a great game. Uh, we're not here to just get as many features that I made into the game, so to speak, and just try to make it connected to like the grand vision. No, awesome. I like that. All right, let's move on to uh, Pascal's question. We'll come to you next. What is your question and the context behind it? Okay, so um, I'm going to ask how important is the technical side of the game development in a game's long-term success? And the background for it is, well, because it's one of the things I really have to think hard about all the time. <laughs> Um, for example, um, when I say uh, long-term, I must... Uh, uh, be precise about it because it can be, uh, mean a lot of things to a lot of people. For a single player game, somebody might think, yeah, uh, maybe three years is uh, long term. Uh, but mm, you need also to think about things like uh, the success of the original Doom. There is still people playing it, it's being ported on every conceivable platform. And at this point, I think it's uh, 30 to 40 years uh, that it's been running. It's pretty much as old as me, uh, or stuff like, uh, uh, I don't know, Fortnite or um, uh, World of Warcraft. The, those are games that have survived uh, quite uh, the long time and in some cases way more than a decade. And I think it wouldn't be possible to get those results without um, solid 
technical con uh, considerations. So um, I would like to hear from um, from you guys. Uh, what do you think about it? Uh, is it something that, as producers, you factor in when thinking about the organization or uh, of the planning of the project or not? Um, I don't know, um, Eric. You want to start? Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there with your examples of both Warcraft and Fortnite and stuff that you know. <laughs> In today's market, you kind of need to be prepared for everything. There hasn't been a single release, I think, or there has been. I mean, there, there is quite common that the big releases nowadays have technical issues at launch, which is kind of an obvious that it is kind of important not to underestimate your uh, height. Uh, but also, I mean, my what I wrote here as a note is like, it's of course very important, but because uh, early proof of tech is always kind of good to validate your go back to uh, Inisha's question about like a vision is the intent uh, because I feel that uh, there's often kind of people easily kind of either fall back on saying that we rely on upcoming tech or that uh, the tech can or our plan for the structure is is in place and it will work but it's always in theory because you sadly can't really test out, stress test the things until late in the game, uh, which kind of results in that if you're not secure with your decisions, when it, with your technical decisions, you kind of have to adjust to your limits even more. So I, yeah, it's it's hard to disagree with saying that your tech is, is the most, isn't valuable. Uh, at the same time, it's kind of funny because it's, it is also classically the, the area that is kind of like the most expensive to both adjust or change, you know, down the line. You can't really suddenly say that you want to have a different backend or, a, you know, different engine just because you find another solution. But yeah. So. Um, Jinesh, uh, what about you? What do you think about it? Ah, uh, so my thoughts, I think, uh, I mean, technology is... I mean, the technical side, technology is very important in in the video game industry, especially in the longevity. And the reason I say this is, you know, because it's not only using the latest tech that's available, but it's also making sure that your team of programmers who write the code for the game, you know, that there isn't code debt, that there is constant code reviews happening in the, during the production of the game. And this is important because, you know, I have seen this and what uh, and I've experienced it. What happens is in the future, once your game is out, suppose a version one is out, it does really well. You, we decide, OK, we want to do a version two. But if the uh, if the code, the way the code is written is very messy or, you know, hacky, then it really creates a lot of problems when it comes to reusing things as well. So that is one part of it. And secondly, when uh, before we start or before we jump into making the game, I think it's very important to sit with the technical team and chart out the pipeline that we want to incorporate uh, within the team, in the game, as well as, you know, work on a bit of uh, technical documents as well. I'm not a programmer myself. This is just my experience talking, which really worked in my team's favor and, and in my favor. But uh, yeah, the technical side is very, very important for sure. Okay, I also see a recent ad from Eric again. Uh, do you want to add something? Yeah, I, my, my question was kind of a counter question to you is like how, as a tech director, like how do you manage um, during development? Let's say that we have signed off on a, on a tech build uh, or structure. And how do you actually manage or predict uh, developers uh, adjustment or their how do you read their designs or their features to kind of uh, fit into your your structure if you understand um, yeah I think I got the question so um, I think that it's very important to um, how can I say a plan ahead and be very transparent in the uh, requirements that uh, you have with the um, code base of the game. So sometimes you um, you can be fine with saying uh, things like, okay, we are making a prototype. This is not going to last long. 
and we are throwing away the code. So uh, do whatever you want, make it as fast as possible and it's, it's gonna be okay. Other times you need to be instead uh, very transparent on the fact that you now we are keeping this thing forever. So it must be ironclad, um, tested and uh, retested and super readable. Um, to the programmer, knowing these things in advance makes all the difference in the world. Um, but, uh, speaking about things that also can make a very long-term impact, uh, there is, for example, one of the things that I think made uh, the original Doom so long-lasting is the fact that they released uh, it open source. Um, so everyone can read the code and create a modified version of it. The assets were still under copyright, so you can just copy-paste uh, everything. But the code is there, is available, is readable, and it's the reason that people can port the game on their own. Um, instead, for speaking of code that you're going to keep forever, uh, sometimes you also need to be transparent on the decision of what tools are going to be down the line. And uh, usually, you also need to postpone this decision as long as possible, because if the sign changes, you're going to change the tools. So um, I've uh, actually, this already happened once in my career. Um, at some point, the team decided to change the engine that we were using. That, from the technical standpoint, it's um, extremely impactful. <laughs> Um, in, in that particular occasion, we switched from Unity to Unreal, so there was also a change in the actual language of um, that the code uses. Uh, but if you write your code uh, well enough, you can actually insert even against something like that. If you are, uh, follow, um, I guess, okay, how can I say, um, if, if, if in your procedures you have a good uh, encapsulation, it's a technical term, sorry, it's um, when you uh, make your features not dependent on the tools, um, you can arrive to a point that even a change this big is not going to force you to completely rewrite the code. Maybe you can just um, uh, refactor it, for example. That is technically possible. Okay, and I think I spoke way for too long time, so uh, please go on. I was thinking, well, based on what you said, like, uh, if, we have, if you want a game that lasts the test of time, let's say a decade, uh, I think that's really important. Like, if you're building a game based on one engine uh, at this point in time, rather than, like you said, uh, feature-based, then if they ever wanted to update the game in the future, then what if, like, in 10 years' time, no way everything's going to be the same, right? So... The way that Doom did it, I feel if everything's open source and they can actually you can just port one from another. But this all sounds very expensive. Like if you want to have a foundation that's really strong, no spaghetti code as well. And like you need to be really confident that your game's going to succeed, which we all know is not. You can't really just guess that. Right. Uh, so it is just a massive balance. Making a game is hard, obviously. Um, and this is just it's clearly when you hear all these movies in part, it's so obvious. Well, uh, on one side, you're right. It's a huge gamble to plan ahead for um, that long of a term. Uh, on the other, it's also true that uh, if you follow some best practices in uh, programming, for example, the ones uh, outlined in uh, Clean Architecture uh, by the so-called Uncle Bob, um, he advises regardless of um, uh, what your plans are for the length of um, the game being out to uh, insulate yourself against changes in tools. Um, it's just a good idea, even if you're going to be with a software that is out, uh, I don't know, one year or two, because even if it's that relatively short of a time frame, maybe you need to move from, I don't know, Unreal 4 to Unreal 5. And that could be an issue if half your features now need the refactor. No, oh, 100%. Um, awesome. Let's move on to the next question. So, Eric, let's change direct direction slightly. What is your question? Context behind it. Yeah. <clears throat> so my question is, uh, should you pivot your game around the player experience and feedback? So the question is kind of like, once you have released the best product you're able to do, uh, and then post-release, you get 
uh, your the, basically the, the feedback from both players and how they interact with your product. Um, and it comes back to, do you feel that you should change your the game's intent and focus based on how the players interact with them? Or should you kind of double down on your vision and kind of try to emphasize and uh, clear a better path for the your intended audience? Um, yeah. So, uh, Yanesha, how do you feel about that? Uh, so... <laughs> Well, from my perspective, I think it really depends. There's no one correct answer. Like some games are created with a specific intent. You know, <clears throat> I mean, they're created in a way, like for example, uh, the game that I really like, Inside, which is by Playdead Studios. If you've played the game, it's a side-scrolling game. It's really dark and it's a mute game with only like basic, you know, very intense sounds. But it's created, I mean, it's specifically created like this to say a certain kind of story with amazing levels. So maybe a lot of, maybe some, you know, some players might have different opinions and share feedback. But uh, then I think in that way, when a game like this, which is so unique, is being released or launched, it's very important for the company uh, to to explain the intent and to explain what exactly does the game deliver well in advance. And in some cases, like if I take Cyberpunk, for example, you know, we know all the issues they had. There were gameplay blockers and a lot of issues when the game released. So in such a case, it's very important to take player feedback because if for any reason, you know, uh, your game has major issues where players just get frustrated or rage quit or they can't just progress in the game, you're going to get bad, I mean, you're going to get a bad name and your goodwill will be tarnished heavily. So you lose player trust. And if you see right now, there are so many video games. It's a question I think everyone, like all video game developers should ask themselves, like, why should anyone choose my game over someone else's game? Why should anyone play my game over sitting on Instagram or Facebook or talking to their friends? Because we buy time from, you know, we buy time from players and for us, it's like, you know, I mean, for us, we need to see all these aspects when we make a game. So, yeah, this is my perspective. Yeah, I, I really agree. I think I'm, I'm happy you you took, brought it up because I, it's uh, formalized in a different way. But I can agree. It's like um, we all, all your free time, you're competing with everything from basically Netflix to racquetball to uh other games so uh, to have a game that is long lasting you really need to kind of prioritize and have it a, clear, a very you know, solid release uh, pascal what what's your thoughts here um the the player feedback is for sure something that uh, one should really pay attention to and if you want to hear a success story about that probably uh, there is an excellent uh, talk um, called um, The Ungoodening of uh, Norman Sky. Um, and that one is, uh, how can I say, a, a situation where uh, expectations were not managed properly at the release. <laughs> uh, but there was a nice comeback exactly by listening to player feedback. On the other hand, it's also true that um, you should listen to player feedback, but not just to what they say, because um, sometimes uh, the the player will get angry against something, but uh, the reason he's frustrated is something else that uh, um, uh, pointing the, the player in the wrong direction. So... It's a, compl a complex balance and requires a lot of uh, psychology also. Um, I think there is a very nice blog that uh, uh, spoke, uh, speaks about the psychology of games. Uh, I think it's called uh, Psychology in Game Design. I'm not sure on the title. Um, but anyway, if you know, study a little bit of psychology, you'll start seeing uh, uh, certain things all over the place. One one of the most notorious is probably the Skinner box. Um, this idea that um, you open a chest and a random thing pops out. Uh, that there is a very old uh, scientific experiment in psychology that this um, thing that now it's basically ubiquitous in games. Um, came out of it's from the 60s i think yeah i think uh, 
Yeah, I agree. It's a, the Skinner box is a very interesting phenomenon, and is um, I would almost say it's kind of misused in uh, in games, but it's a very effective tool. <laughs> No doubt. Can someone explain the Skinner box to me, please? Uh, the Skinner box, uh, box is uh, the result of basically you getting a, a dopamine hit of opening an unknown uh, an unknown source, in a sense, basically, to simplify it. So you get rewarded. Uh, you feel a sense of reward just by opening the box. I mean, it could be anything from trade cards to, you know, to loot boxes is like the thing in, in video games. So uh, the thrill of the expectations of what it could be is enough of a dopamine hit to kind of um, like confirm your purchase of just opening the box so in theory you're you're yeah you get enough pleasure of just opening without having a result of it pascal what are you thinking? Uh, um, it's true that right now it's very highly misused in um, situations like uh, the loot boxes, but there is also good examples of how to use a, um, the Skinner box for a, a pleasant game uh, gameplay. For example, uh, if you think back to the old Diablo games, the, there you have the Skinner box uh, all the time. And uh, also, if you think about uh, Minecraft, uh, every time you break um, a cube, that's technically a small skill box moment because you don't know what's behind it. And you might find uh, either just another uh, cube like the one you broke or maybe a diamond, gold, um, some important resource. So it, it is being used, misused, yes, but there is room for a very good use of it. I was thinking, like, it's every good game has a good feature of a Skinner box, not even loot box. I'm just thinking RuneScape now, uh, where literally every time you kill a monster, there's a drop, and you obviously have a percentage of a chance, and if you get really lucky, you get the excitement one. And you can be playing for five hours and get absolutely nothing, but why would you keep playing for five hours and get nothing? Because of this, because you might get something. And if you got, let's say, 10 gold pieces every time you kill someone, it gets a bit boring quite quickly. Yeah, I think that um, when it's talk, talking about like pivoting for multiplayer games, um, it is kind of important that you have kind of a persona when it comes to players. Like there's a certain group of people that plays your game for a certain reason. Um, like, I mean, we, we've had Quake throughout the ages and Counter-Strike through the ages, and they are both competitive shooters but they are two entirely different genre uh, like experiences you can say that about battlefield and you know call of duty and so on uh, so there is a kind of a cutout edge niche for everybody so when you are maybe not when you want to pivot or you want to try something out i think it's kind of important to set up an environment where you can do tests live without it being obvious that it is uh, uh, a pivot or something like um, I think personally like when it comes to life services I think it's really uh, really helps development if you have already like kind of set up this experimental Wednesdays or like you know every other weekend there is an event and it is just an event where you maybe tweak your settings to kind of prove something or you a b test it in some way um, uh, I think uh, because in that way you can kind of see how your audience reacts and also kind of take a stance if it is uh, is it new game modes that the players want to to expand the lifetime of this game or is it um you know a pacing change that is the fact that they actually want they're asking for so yeah i think uh, creating an environment for uh, like nudging your experience to get confirmations that uh, your audience is is looking for what you are creating, basically. Pascal, did you have something to say? Yeah, um, I was thinking about, uh, as an example, probably the um, uh, in uh, League of Legends, you got the um, Aram, uh, which was born as a way that players actually played. Um, so everybody picked the random character and uh, went to the middle lane. Uh, that was born um, not as a plan from the um, not as a plan from the uh, developers, but it was done by the community. And uh, in turn, uh, this also uh, kinda is uh, a return to origins for a game like League of Legends, because uh, the way that that ki kind of gameplay was born was uh, as a mod of um, a StarCraft game. So. Uh, there is um, a lot in the in considering even just the player initiative of um, how a game is played. Uh, on the other hand, yeah, the uh, the idea of using uh, events as a way to test 
the reaction of the player base is an excellent way to introduce new mechanics. Uh, but it's also true that if you want to um, create a major change in um, how a game is played, uh, you, you can't just try that as a small modification that is temporary. You will need um, to change something core in the game mechanic. Uh, and that is going to be a very huge investment. So maybe if you want to go that way, um, it, it will be impossible to fail fast with just a, um, an event. You will need to have something like uh, uh, focus groups, um, testing of that kind. Janesha, what are you thinking? So I think, uh, you know, the uh... I mean, uh, Eric and Pascal, whatever you guys have said, uh, whatever you guys said is really awesome. And I agree with you. And there is also another way where we can really, you know, capture, the, we can get to know what the players really like about the game, what they don't like well in advance. In the sense, once the game is launched, you know, we also have data analytics always attached to games where when we make the game, we have a data analytic. We have a data analytical team. Sorry, and uh, we also write code also in such a way where we capture this information. So it helps us, or uh, you know, as game developers, know in when the game releases in the next three months, we can get that information and see that okay, what part or what, for example, what level do the players like the most? What they didn't like what parts of the map they are going to, what parts they are maybe not going to, maybe crashes, maybe other issues. So I think this is also a great way of, you know, capturing this kind of information to make decisions, to help, I mean, to help better the player experience. Oh, I like that. I like it a lot. Uh, Eric, what are you thinking? Yeah, I want to kind of uh, do a check-in here with Janesh about it because I, I feel that, uh, as you said, like something that has, during the past years, I have become quite focused for me is like, as we say, data or telemetry uh, based on on well, basically having stat-driven decisions or basically, you know, uh, data-driven decisions is maybe a better, better way to say it. Uh, and within mobile games, it's kind of, it's a core fundament there. Like, you know, it's, it's very clear that, you know, you d decisions are based on actual numbers and not that much of a gut feeling. Um, I think we are getting there now with games. I mean, with you know, commercial v uh, games for console and uh, PC. But I still still feel that I think um, there's still a lot of passion as like the developer still feels that their you know uh, passionate gut is like the 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 core of a decision making. And I think it's interesting in the sense if we have like the topic of you know how do you how do you build a long lasting game? Is it like do you theoretically should you remove <laughs> the the developers out of the equation because as like once you have launched your vision is it up to the the masses and the like to basically thereafter be your engine of of decision making uh, i think everybody seems to have a opinion of that so uh, because pascal did you want to add something sure. um personally i don't think there is a, a conflict between uh, using telemetry and um, following the gut instinct of the uh, of the developer. Um, from my point of view, uh, the telemetry is a useful tool that you need to put in the hands of the developer. Uh, it's true that some very commercial games uh, will put that tool in the hands of the marketers instead, and that can absolutely, uh, I can say, uh, bring the game away from the original vision. But if you use that tool uh, for the developer to know how actually the game is played by everybody, that can be an incredible insight that you really don't have any other way to get. Janesha, you had something to say? <laughs> yeah, I won't take up much time because this topic is super interesting and I think we can go on and on and on about it. Uh, but Let's I do it. I don't mind. <laughs> but I agree with you, Pascal. I think if this data is given to the correct people who is the game development team instead of, you know, always just, you know, sort of focusing it to the marketing team, it can add a huge value. And I'm pretty sure, you know, game developers or, uh, I mean, any of us producers, game developers, we are so passionate about our vision. At the end of the day, I don't think that, you know, uh, I don't think that any game dev team will, will completely change their vision. 
unless there's something really wrong with the game instead i think they'll find new ways on how to make the vision more clear more playable taking the player feedback into consideration that's something i feel maybe that's something i would do <laughs> uh, but yeah i mean I, i really like both your answers go for it, eric what are you thinking yeah i think um i think uh, since we're in the in the topic of basically data driven and stuff i think uh one thing that uh, i like is that if you can start uh, intertwining i know we maybe get into qa later but uh, the the earlier you can uh, link up qa and let's say this telemetry or the data analysts in the development the the better you can kind of present your features so i think it definitely can be a tool so for example developers have a feature and again go back to the intent if they then have a discussion with the data analyst and like how can i confirm that the the vision of my feature is being acknowledged or is being used correctly you can kind of like set up these hooks to kind of confirm that you are the right way i mean it goes everything from you know uh, interaction or to like ui uh, combat or you know world building uh, the sense is like can the the earlier you can or the better you can confirm your decision making the easier you have also to make future decisions when you know that you can kind of uh, backtrack or you can at least you know that you will get valid information about it because i mean there's always been the situations where you have all the numbers but then you don't really know how to read it or you read it and you get out the wrong value uh, there is the classic uh, world war 2 uh, pilot uh researcher did the world war 2 with the british army where they basically all the planes that came back they mapped out all the holes on the plane and the intention was like let's reinforce the areas where you have all the holes been shot which is where he then stated like that's not the thing you should look at you should look at these are the planes that came back so <laughs> the places where they haven't been these planes have not been shot that's the most important place to actually reinforce to secure safety getting back and that's i think it's a kind of a classic thing to, when it comes to game development that people easily just bog down in the numbers and see that we have a huge uh, influx in an area and it's not actually that area that's the issue it's something else that is either you know uh, wrongly interpreted or misplaced and uh, that results in the data being skewed and it's not actually that source so yeah i like that a lot i can see good example of that uh, happening like in a game like i'm only playing this version of the game because i'm stuck and I'd, i'd rather be doing something else but obviously that could tell you uh, a million things in the data awesome let's move on to our final question which is around quality insurance so like how important is quality insurance for the success and longevity of games and i'm thinking context wise uh there's kind of two stages of quality assurance so obviously there's different types of games there's games as a service and kind of games that are kind of standalone projects but i'm thinking the two stages so quality assurance from when you're developing the game make sure it gets released uh, in a stable condition but also when you're adding a new feature to a multiplayer game or dlc like how much time how much how important is qa like should we not put it out to the masses and then see what happens and maybe let the actual players do a bit of the qa for us what are we thinking i'll start with uh, pascal well, from my point of view qa it's extremely important and you need to distinguish uh, two types of qa the uh, let's call it technical qa and the experience qa um, on one side you have the one the part about bugs so simple things like uh, oh yeah the game crashes if you do this and that and yeah of course should not happen and qa tells you what it happens um but on the other hand uh, for and, and this i think it's not really for the long term success of the game but for the success period of the game um for the long term i think the other kind of qa is even more important um because usually um people working in qa it's people that are really gamers at heart uh they know um even more of your game than anyone else that is producing it because they are, have a holistic vision um they see it coming together not just focusing on one tiny corner and uh, sometimes they have um, incredibly important insight 
I remember this case in um, I read of it in a book of um, uh, game design theory. Uh, of uh, uh, there was this game that was uh, where they were trying to fix the economy of uh, uh, their game, and they had an um, uh, expert in economy came in, uh, analyzed the flow of the um, currency, the resources, and so on. And he gave a solution for how you should uh, fix the economy. Uh, they implemented it and didn't go too well. Then they, uh, the QA person uh, voiced the, his opinion. And uh, that person logged in like a thousand hours playing the game uh, easily. So he was able to tell, yeah, this uh, power up here is completely underpowered. This one here is completely overpriced, so it is useless. Um, thanks to that insight, they were able to fix actually the game economy. So um, it's something that I think it should absolutely not be underestimated. And um, I can say it, that gives a very important role, I think, to internal QA, even if some people think, yeah, you can just. Uh, uh, have it external i i don't think so no i like that a lot because i'm i was thinking you could do it all external but now that you mention it like when you have someone who's doing it internally it can help give you the answers you need without a massive back and forth and also they know what you want there's like the things are aligned so to speak like in terms of like a monetary point of view i'm thinking from a game uh so no it's like it is vital <laughs> uh, it's not necessarily how important it's kind of vital awesome uh eric what, you, what are your thoughts? I think like the two biggest, um, well, I think definitely QA is very important, of course. But I think the two biggest uh, like benefits of QA is the fact that you have, uh, one, they should be valued as kind of like a confirmation of the, uh, the actual signed off feature or intent. Because it can easily be, you know, that, uh, you know, developers uh, implement. And then when it's kind of gets signed, sent in and, you know, you check off your uh, your tasks. It still needs to be verified that you know this is as you intend. This is how it is documented, or basically this is how we have signed off it to be. Uh, so they they shouldn't just be used to kind of check check bugs. It's also kind of their step to like actually confirm that the work you have done is up to par to as we have described. And if not, it is kind of like. Uh, Either we have to confirm that this is what we intended or we rewrite our documentation or it goes back to the developers. So it kind of keeps them in check that they can't really shoot from the hip. <laughs> uh, the second thing is think that I think is really valuable is like the QA is, is in theory like your first step or your like for mock reviews or like your internal in-house client because they shouldn't be invested in a specific corner of the game. They are the ones that are actually playing it as intended so you could get easy early feedback back in like uh, that you know we are not experiencing what you guys are talking about or like it, um, you know this intended to be a group uh, a, a co-op game but the best way to play it right now is just to run solo or you know it's uh, they are kind of like a, a good qa i feel isn't isn't doesn't have like favorites in a sense it's kind of like you know you describe the game for them and they, they run off with it and you know you get the feedback you get based on like this is how the experience is no matter what the intent is we we will just be honest with how it is played and then you have like kind of confirmation that either you are doing it right or it is being misunderstood lovely Janesha, what are your thoughts uh so uh, so i feel like qa is the other backbone of the company, of the game development life cycle, because, you know, it's, their job is beyond assuring quality or finding bugs. I think a good QA, you know, like Pascal said, they are gamers by heart. They know video games. They know what really works and what doesn't work. So when they come and they even give you feedbacks, when they give feedbacks to the production team, I think it's very important to even pay heed to their feedbacks on, okay, why, you know, this part of the game doesn't work, why this is boring, or maybe why some parts of the game are amazing for them and we should keep it the way it is. So, so they are uh, super important. And uh, besides uh, that, I think the you know, usually producers and uh, producers and QAs, if they become best friends, I promise you, we'll have like the best quality game 
ever made <laughs> because uh, you know because that's how it is we have to make sure that we listen to them and not just sideline what they have to say and also a lot of times uh, testers they also write test cases so when you know if a qa is playing one part of the map they they sit and they think they think of different scenarios that maybe none of us could think of and that's where they add the maximum value so they end up writing documents uh, different use cases of how a player would go and interact with that part of the world how the player would play in the level and you know uh, what is the basically the right from the player's standpoint and this is something that helps the develop mean this is something that helps the development team and it's not only programmers it's even artists so you know it's seeing it's basically seeing the game from a holistic standpoint from their vision before it goes to the players which is very very important for us so yeah it's so yeah these are my thoughts lovely now i think i'll just conclude there because i feel like we've covered a lot i mean when it comes to your big vision when you have a limited time and budget i feel like uh we kind of touched on the fact that we should manage expectation when it comes to the vision and to rather focus on kind of individual gameplay features you can easily make it feel like oh it's my baby why are you going to shoot the baby try to have everyone focus on the big vision of the, we're making a good game at the end of the day and when we were talking about the kind of importance of the techno side of game development i feel like the importance of having solid code that isn't spaghetti which just allows for a lot smoother process down the road not even uh just pre-production i'm thinking is well post-production of course it's going to be easier uh, near the end of the life cycle when you're testing but even in the future if you want a game to last 5 10 years uh, you need a solid foundation which obviously makes sense but it's very hard uh, in the in actual practice i can imagine when it comes to the kind of play experience and feedback i think we touched on the fact that it's a bit of both you need to look at the data but you also need to look at the kind of play feedback and the people telling you and just making sure that data is good and also there's always going to be the loud minority as well i feel when it comes to some feedback so having a holistic view rather than looking just one thing and i think at the end we kind of touched on how important qa is and how it should be kind of internal because i came into this uh, podcast thinking it should just be external those people playing more hours in the game but i think i've been sold uh, internal qa teams they should keep their jobs 100% Awesome. Uh we'll leave it there. This has been the Evo Gaming podcast. I want to take this opportunity to thank Junesha, Pascal and Eric for joining me today and providing their insights. Thank you so much everybody for listening. If you would like to get involved in one of our upcoming podcasts or just want to chat, reach out to me on LinkedIn at Harry Foku. Foku spelled P H O K O U. Bye everybody. Awesome. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for having us. <laughs>